0: From the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago, New Dawn, a podcast about understanding the connections between race, capitalism, and neoliberalism, with your host, Michael Dawson. For our 10th episode, we have a guest host, Megan Ming Francis from the University of Washington.
1: Welcome to the 10th podcast in the Racing Capitalism series here. Today, we're going to flip the script a bit. My name is Megan Francis. I'm at the University of Washington in the political science department. And today I am going to interview the interviewer. So it should be a lot of fun. I'm going to do a brief introduction of Professor Michael Dawson, and then we're going to launch into what I know will be an interesting discussion of his time at the University of Chicago, his research, and future directions. All right. So let's get into this. Michael Dawson is the John D. MacArthur professor of political science in the college at the University of Chicago. He has also previously taught at the University of Michigan and Harvard University. He is one of the nation's leading experts on race and politics and was a founding director of the university's Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago and a principal investigator on several important studies of black politics. From 2000 to 2004, Dawson and Lawrence Bobo conducted six public opinion studies on the rich divide in the United States, creating the richest data on this issue that exists. His research interests have included the development of quantitative models of African-American political behavior and public opinion, the political effects of urban poverty, and African-American political ideology. Most recently, he is the author of Blacks in and out of the left. He is also the author of a number of other books, including Not in Our Lifetimes, Black Visions, and Behind the Mule. Professor Dawson, how you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Okay. I'm
1: doing great. Oh, you know, school's out. <laughs> All right. So, I'm I'm always interested in stories about how people find their way into the academy, and also connectedly about how real world experience influences scholarship. I'm wondering if you could say a bit about how did you go from a young student at Stanford. And I know you took some time off. So how did you go from (laughs) a student at Stanford and then come back into the academy? If you could talk a bit about that process, that would be fantastic.
0: I'll say a little bit. I mean, I was sort of young when I started Stanford. I was 16. And once the first week I was at Stanford, the Black Student Union, during orientation week, had an event for us every day. One day was a talk by the Black Panther Party. Another day was a movie by... At the time, Leroy Jones, later to be known as Mary Baraka, another, there was several parties thrown in from what I remember, uh, <laughs> and a number of political events as well. So I became an active member of the Black Student Union from literally day one of my time at Stanford, and I came from a political family in Chicago that was very active in Democratic Party politics. And also at the time became involved in black radical student politics, which also meant that we were involved not only in the black power movement, but also in the anti-Vietnam War movement as well, as well as solidarity Uh, with a variety of African liberation movements at the time. That led to deepening political involvement. It was through that work that I met my future partner, Alice Furumoto, who most people knew as Eichel. uh, And... We both, well, she got thrown out of school for protesting a professor of engineering who believed that blacks were genetically inferior. inferior.
1: And, and, what, I, and, what, and what year was this? I'm not
0: going to say what year it was. <laughs> Y'all think I'm old already. <laughs> it was back in the day. <laughs> I, okay, right, okay. But the guy was the, invented the transistor and won the Nobel Prize in, in uh, physics for inventing the transistor, but he was actually paying black women to be sterilized. So women of color were organizing and she got thrown out for a few years for that. So and I dropped out, and so we were both organizing, raised and ended up raising a family. And we say took some time off. It took about nine years off before I went back to school. I was working in Silicon Valley technician and doing community organizing, a little bit of union organizing. Eventually started organizing at a community college in Oakland. And then got laid off during a recession and went back to school at Berkeley and finished my degree in African-American studies. Went to Harvard, dropped my African name. <laughs> 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 I became Michael Dawson again. And, <laughs> and from there went on to you know, first a job at the University of Michigan, then University of Chicago, and then what you outlined afterwards. And uh, my dissertation project in which sort of, but really didn't lead to my first book, was I had two questions. Um, What was the political economy of race in the United States, which given the Cold War atmosphere of political science at the time, I was told you cannot research, although I studied a lot of political economy. So the other question, though, was collapse of the black power movement and the left in general. Uh And I was very curious about I mean, all these claims about what black people really thought, what black people believed, what, what, what constituted black politics, and I was very right. interested as someone who believed in empirical research about we don't know very much about what black people actually think. Right, and, right. And, you know, what motivates them, what, what structures, the, polit- the, the attitudinal structures, and how that leads to particular types of political action and mobilization. So that's what I've been working on, and then now that I am fairly secure within the academy as much as somebody with the type of politics I have can be, I've also returned to my roots and started thinking very hard about racial capitalism and intersections of race, gender, and class.
1: And so your time organizing in that kind of, the, the time period between Stanford and then your return to school has influenced and still continues to influence your work today.
0: It certainly has. And I, one of the, the differences I have with many members of our profession, is that I don't pretend that it doesn't. All of us are, st- are structured by our personal beliefs. I try to do my work as rigorously and objectively as possible, but that doesn't mean that I'm not influenced by my political beliefs, the, my, my life experiences, etc. I would rather have my readers know how I look at a question, and then they can determine how objectively I did, and then try to pretend that I'm being value-free and neutral when I do when I do my work.
1: Right, and you—you didn't—you weren't a political science undergrad major, were you?
0: No, I was at, at Stanford. I'm not sure what I majored in besides <laughs> bidwist parties and, and causing trouble. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm good at bidwist. <laughs> I, I, I am the. Never mind. I won't, I won't say about. You, you might think you're good, but you're not really. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's going to get tested one day soon. I have asked Chris Parker about what happened when he played bidwist at my house. Oh, my God. Chris Parker is a colleague of Professor Francis's, and he learned not to talk about Bitwist in my presence. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's still blood from that, from that uh, encounter. But to go back to your question, I didn't, I mean, I was sort of floating between a couple of majors when I was at Stanford. I wasn't sure, I mean, I've always been torn between the hard sciences, and particularly computer science and physics on one hand and social sciences on the other. So I wasn't quite sure, and African-American studies being part of that. When I was at Berkeley, I went back as an engineering major and realized within within, within like a month that these were all 20-year-olds and 19-year-olds who wanted to be Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And I I didn't want to be Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. And I was no longer 19 or 20. Uh, (laughs) I Mm -hmm. realized that my heart really wasn't in it, and so... I finished Berkeley my entire time, except for that one month at Berkeley, was an African-American studies major, which trained me very, very well for the type of research I wanted to do professionally.
1: I'm curious on on this point. So as you well know, we're in an interesting time period around kind of the focus of, let's say, black studies and Chicano departments at kind of in the university um, landscape right now. And and I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, as someone who has spent, who was trained in a black studies department and somebody who is in a political science department right now that obviously focuses on the politics of African-Americans, are black studies departments still needed today and what do they offer students, institutions Yeah, I was wondering if you could just say a bit about that. I I think that there's kind of, as you know, a larger debate around the necessity of these different types of departments and also decimating of these departments at a number of universities. And I'm curious about where you stand on that.
0: When I was recruited to Michigan out of grad school, the reason I went was because they had a very strong black studies department. I had a joint appointment. And the reason I left Chicago for Harvard was because I wanted to join the black studies department at Harvard. Oh, okay. So it wasn't, I wasn't attracted to the political science department at Harvard. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was partly the attack on black studies at Harvard at the time I was there that led me to return to Chicago. So the, I, I think there's a very strong need for black, for black studies and racial ethnic studies. And I, I, I see it as... Occurring along parallel tracks. So within disciplines such as political science, there's certainly a need for like what we call in our in our field, race and ethnic policy, the study of race and ethnic politics. There, it's, it's stupefying and idiotic and shows how intellectually lazy the great majority of our colleagues are if, uh, to the degree uh, uh, uh. That, that they can't understand that political institutions, political movements, political parties, the politics of the United States, the basic structure of the economy is structured by race. Right. So certainly the, these studies need to be occurring within the disciplines. That's not the question. But I think if you look at, I mean, just sitting in, for example, the seminar, a faculty graduate student seminar at Harvard on African American Studies. African American Studies has a history as long as sociology, longer than political science in this country. Uh. And the founders of African American Studies were also the founders of the disciplines. So, for example, the founder of sociology in the United States um, the, was a German trained W.E.B. Du Bois. Yes. And, but he was also the founder, of, you know, one of the founders of Black Studies in the United States. So, our, so the Black Studies is a methodology of thinking about a set of problems, the relationships between, for example, race and economics, the role that racial hierarchies play in structuring the globe, and Mm -hmm. globally, nationally, locally, regionally, and internationally, the types of combinations, how uh, combining humanistic, um, natural sciences, and social science to investigate a set of problematics and intellectual inquiry, all suggest a need for black studies department, Chicano studies department, I would add gender studies as well. Now, you know, I'm not a purist. I think different campuses can organize themselves differently depending on the the strengths and interests of the faculty to conduct these studies, but that there is coherent intellectual projects that are critical. The other thing about black studies departments in particular, and again, I'm not counterposing this, for example, the Chicano studies department, which have a similar history, right. is that they also are much more willing than most humanities and social science departments are to think about how does our intellectual inquiry make a better and more just world. Yes, yes. And as, given the level of increase we know from works of those such as Thomas Piketty, increasing inequality across multiple dimensions, not just in the United States, but globally, we need our finest minds, at least some of them, to be devoted to questions about how do we not only develop in rigorous intellectual and scholarly models and, and projects, but then how can they be translated
1: in a way that makes a better world? Oh, that's excellent. Great. Thank you, Michael. My next question touches on your scholarship. So, and I, you and I have talked about this Actually, at length, but at some point, need some sort of, I believe, a symposium, kind of retrospective on behind the mule. Now, I think I was, I was doing the math this morning, so I think it's been 23 years since it was published, and much, much ink has been spilled by scholars, journalists, people out in the media, and who have come after you to use tests, broaden, and challenge the linked fate th- theoretical framework. Most recently, I was on a, I was on this big panel at the New America new america foundation in dc with jamel bowie two of the different fellows there and somebody brought up and explained your linked fate phenomenon to the audience and they sat and wrapped attention so that was kind of cool i was wondering um if you could reflect uh, about linked fate um, about behind the meal what do you think has been particularly gratifying in its aftermath what did you find most surprising And what do you see as the future of link fate scholarship? And for those who perhaps come from outside the social sciences, I have all my graduate students still read about this. They still want to write and do projects on this. And this is, people are still writing, even after all these years, articles about link fate. So I was wondering, I think a lot of us would like to hear from you about it.
0: I mean, at its essence, the concept of link fate is a theoretical concept to try to explain Patterns of political behavior across different divisions among African Americans, and there are a few things. There are a few things to point out. I think it's been misused a lot in in scholarship. Oh. It's not a normative. It. It's not a normative theory. It's not saying that blacks should be unified or blacks should have believe that their fate is linked. It says that blacks act as if, <laughs> because that's what they, African-American respondents tell us on survey after survey. Yes, I what happens to other black people is important to me. So if you start with that empirical recognition, then how does that shape the politics and attitudes and behaviors of African-Americans? So it's, a, it's an empirical description of how African-Americans view themselves with relationship to other members of a racial group. And then we use, that, we use that measure then to try to understand how does that perception shape people's likelihood to adopt a particular ideology, etc. Now, as a social scientist training in many different old schools, if you were a pluralist, if you were a rational choice theorist, if you were a Marxist, You also come to the same conclusion, which I know is heresy, but it's true, which is if you have different economic status, you're going to have different politics. Now, you know, you might have different explanations, whether you're a rational choice theorist or a Marxist theorist, but you you all expect to see empirically that there's going to be politics should align with class to, to a significant, you know, socio-economic class to a significant degree. And with Black folks that didn't work very well. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. <laughs> so right. the question was to explain why and under what conditions and part of the part of the, the more empirical nature of the project of of studying link fate was to understand its institutional roots in the family and the the particularly we find particularly powerful African American media membership in an African American political groups trying to change the fate of African-Americans. So we find a very sociological route to the perception of linked fate. And we find that the sort of media environment one is, the sort of social environment one is, among African-Americans, the more likely than one is to believe that A, your perceptions leak, and then to take a variety of specific, and usually more radical than other Americans' political positions. And we say and the other thing I say is that a, this will probably change under time as black social conditions change over time, but it will change more slowly than we might expect due to institutional stickiness. The institutions tend to change more slowly than the circumstances the institutions themselves find themselves into.
1: Interesting. I mean, so and and this this last part of this question, though, in terms of what do you see as the future of Linked Fate scholarship? And uh, what would you like to see? What, what perhaps in terms of intellectual puzzles do you think that still exist around it? What articles that perhaps relate to Linked Fate might you be interested in reading in the future, Michael?
0: Well, I, in some ways, it's almost like I think we should be thinking about books, despite hearing graduate students tell me this week that some of my senior colleagues are saying that we don't write books anymore. I I do, I know. I guess I'm I'm (laughs) old-fashioned. That in some ways, uh, the project around Link fate was part of a more ambitious and maybe overly ambitious project that as social scientists in grad school, we all were trying to wrestle with, which was being able to explain everything from the sort of individual behavior and attitudes on an individual how that gets reflective in ideology and how all that is shaped by the political economy the patterns of domination whether it's around gender class or race etc and how that all fits together so link fate is only the sort of individual low level micro part of the story there's a macro and systemic part of the story that also has to be put together mm-hmm. and that's what I want to read it's not so much in the next study on link fate I want to read I want to know how I mean one of the things that for many generations, or at least many decades, social scientists were taught were that our attitudes, our tastes, are exogenous. No, they're not. They're formed by institutions. They're formed by the social networks at right. hand. They're formed by the ideological influence that, that and the media environment that we find ourselves in. So, how do all those things relate? How did, does you know? How does one? What linkages become salient politically to a to an individual to a group? Those are, the t- those are the type of studies that I would like to see.
1: Okay, great, great. And last, I, I mean, uh, the last re- directly related linked fate question, I have to ask you this in part because post, unfortunately I have to bring in the election of 2016, post-election, I, I, I've seen this and I've had a number of discussions most recently this morning with colleagues about does, does, a, does a type of linked fate exist for whites? It are, it is what has happened in 2016 and what we're seeing in 2017, perhaps that whites are acting as if a type of white solidarity linked fate. How do you feel about that? What do you think about this?
0: Interesting question. I have problems with the actual use of the linked fate question in surveys, particularly among white Americans. And it's because I've did some experiments. Okay. And the experiments show that when you ask a, a, a black person, "Is your fate linked to that of the race?" Black respondents overwhelmingly understand the question the same way, even if they answer the question differently. Uh, when I've asked white Americans the same question and then asked them about what they meant by it later, they meant they, they interpret the question differently. So oh, that's interesting. So like, there's a couple I know and. They're both, surprise, surprise, lefties. I don't know why that would be the case. But one of them said, yes, I have a high level of link fate because that's the empirical reality. I think what happens to, what I think happens to me is reflected by what happens to white people as a group. So he took it as an empirical question. His partner said, no, I reject it altogether because I reject the idea that that my identity as a white person is important. So one took it as a normative question, and one took it as a empirical question des- describing you know reality. And it's not uh, either the responses was wrong, but they understood the question fundamentally differently. And therefore, just from a statistical point of view, you're going to get garbage back if you ask that question among white Americans. At least that was true 10 years ago. Now. What, do I think there's a rise in white identity politics and a, yes. and a at this point two decades long mobilization that has be, become extraordinarily frightening of of white privilege and white and white supremacy in, through the political process, including the electoral process that we saw in its latest manifestation in 2016? Absolutely. I separate that from using the language of linked fate. I think we have historical examples, whether it's National Socialism in Europe or the rise of the neo Nazi movements throughout Western, Central, and Eastern Europe today, that are closer parallels And thinking about linked fate, which I think has a very specific and historically grounded context. So I would use different language, but the phenomena certainly exists.
1: Great. In in terms of to to move away from the link freight uh, kind of theoretical framework, I'm going to get to obviously race and capitalism in a bit, but I want to talk for a moment around your work on reparations. And so I know that this is kind of an area that has received a lot more of more attention, in part because the nehisi Coates article cover story in the Atlantic, I think, was a two years ago. But you've been working on this for a while now. I'm wondering if you could say a bit about your work. I think you have a chapter with Allison on reparations, as well as, I was. I, I always go to the Black Perspectives website. They have these fascinating articles by a number of seasoned, as well as junior scholars. And there was a recent article published on May 22nd called A Case for Reparations at the University of Chicago. And this is at some level under tradition how, of how a number of schools, well-known schools that are very well endowed recently have, like, have found out kind of the, the roots, actually deeper roots around race. And so I'm wondering if you could say, talk about your work on reparations, if you could say a bit about the article, a kind of a case for reparations at the University of Chicago. I, I believe that it was written by four graduate students, two or four graduate students, as well as if you could say a bit about the university's response to it. Um, I'm super curious about what is going on at your university.
0: My work on reparations at this point is almost 20 years old. I worked with a, well, first it started when I was still at Harvard, which which was quite a while ago. And, wow. And it was with the work with Larry Bobo where we, just before, I think people forget, just before 2001, before nine eleven, there was a growing debate at that time in the United States around reparations. And even some of the big polls like ABC were were. We're polling on reparations nationally. And so as part of the initial surveys that Larry and I did, well, we included questions of reparations and apologies for slavery. And the racial disparities were just extraordinary. It was like four percent of white people supported reparations, as opposed to something like 67, 80 percent of African- Americans. And when you asked about apology, only 10 percent of white people said that the United States should apologize for slavery and (laughs) that's
1: that's interesting (laughs)
0: we even embedded an experiment it might be a little bit more than that i have to go back and look at the numbers but it was like overwhelming just these massive disparities uh, on both reparations and apologies so we received some just criticism and we said okay let's be more fine-tuned we asked about in subsequent surveys over the next several years we asked about type of reparations. We asked about reparations for Jim Crow, since Jim, many people today are still alive who lived under Jim Crow. We asked about reparations and apologies for identifiable victims of Rosewood and Tulsa. In other words, 20th century uh, programs. And the numbers don't move for white folks. Really? They don't want none of that. No, no apologies, no, no reparations for any of that. So we kept asking the questions, including with studies I did later between 2008 and 2010, where Kathy Cohen was my dear colleague and friend at the university here. We asked the question again. We actually, because of space, dropped the reparations question because there's so little variation among white people that you couldn't actually use this statistically in a meaningful way. So we asked the apology question again, if anything, black and white opinion was hardening, and it was, it was interesting because there's much more mixed opinion among Asians in the United States and, and Latinos, but the polar opposites were blacks and whites on this. And mm. so Allison and I were, Allison's a professor at starting at Penn State. We st- wrote a p- paper that's Part theory, you know, sort of typical University of Chicago mismatch. Part theory, part, <laughs> part history, and a, a fair amount of data analysis. Where we used the more recent 2008 to 2010 data, and we're now in the process of adding data from 2016, 2017. It also includes questions about Ferguson as well. But there's a massive public opinion divide about reparations. And like what people, people forget. Or don't want to know, I think it's probably more accurate is that reparations was a demand by civil rights groups like those led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it was mm-hmm. it was a demand of liberals, it was de- of black liberals, it was a demand of black nationalists, it was a demand of black leftists. It's been a consistent demand, not just at the national level, but in terms of companies like some of the insurance companies we know. Were founded on ensuring the slave trade. Yes, and now we're finding increasingly do the work of people at MIT, George Washington University at Georgetown, and elsewhere that many universities benefited from the from slavery directly. So right. the story about the University of Chicago had always been, and I knew as being from the South Side of Chicago, I know this. And, you know, my family being deeply involved in politics here and me working summer jobs for the city when I was in college. The the University of Chicago has been deeply involved in reinforcing patterns of segregation throughout the 20th century, and in fact, in creating the, quote, unquote, black ghetto on the south side of Chicago. Uh. And it, it goes from everything from policing to housing policy to land development to urban renewal, et cetera. But what we did, but we always assumed that this was a story about Jim Crow. the right. Official founding of the university is 1890. Now, what I, I, I think many other people were stunned by in the last two weeks was this story done by four history graduate students, based on the work done by one, the de- <laughs> a celebratory history of the University of Chicago. It makes claims that the real history of the University of Chicago is a goes back to 1856. And there's pretty solid evidence, historical evidence for that. And B was founded on the fact that Stephen Douglas of the Lincoln-Douglas debates <laughs> married into a Mississippi planter family. Yes. That his wife was given as a gift so it wouldn't be in his name. A plantation was a number of African descended slaves. And that was the money that was the basis for the endowment of the, and the donor networks, the faculty the first president etc that the, that that University of Chicago essentially became the new University of Chicago they changed the name to avoid the debt that the old university had racked up but <laughs> oh my god but yeah yeah but so what University of Chicago even more than institutions like Brown or or Georgetown was essentially founded due to Mississippi slavery
1: right so, this, is, this, yeah. this and, is an amazing effort of following the money.
0: Yeah, following the money. And the, I mean, this is finals weeks for us, so in one sense, not surprising, but in another sense, it's also not surprising. I haven't heard any response from the administration yet.
1: Nothing? There's not been an attempt to fund more research on this, to hold a conference, to have a meeting with the graduate students, perhaps? Not, it.
0: not at this time.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Wow. I assume that we'll hear more in the future. Okay. All right. No, that's great. Thank you, Michael. So I want to move now to your work on race and capitalism, which I'm a lot more familiar with, but I'm hoping that you could explain a bit more for our listeners in terms of what you hope in terms of future directions with the group, what you what you at some level hope this group develops into – also, I know that you had a number of recent exchanges, scholarly exchanges with Nancy Fraser. I'm wondering if you could say a bit about that. And then lastly, if you could tell us what you're currently working on. I think that's what a lot of us would like to know right now. So,
0: The last question is the hardest, so I'll save that for last. Uh- <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, in terms of future directions, I think it's pretty open-ended. As, as you well know, and maybe perhaps our listeners have determined over the last several podcasts, we're at the very beginning of the process. We have working groups on history, on contemporary contours, on on series of race and capitalism. And on global aspects, and as you know, those those groups aren't fixed in stone. I don't know if we're going to call it a working group, but there's certainly a, graduate students from around the country are coming together, to talking, thinking together about raising capitalism as well. And they're affiliated with the project, and we'll also be trying to put together a meeting. There's going to be meetings in LA that we talked about when I, when I interviewed Peter Hudson in October on the global aspects. There'll be an upcoming meeting either in New York or Chicago on contemporary contours. And we're building from about a year, year and a half, maybe a little less, toward a very large conference that brings all the groups, all the different campus cores at places like your university, University of Washington at UCLA and other campus cores with the working groups together in one meeting, probably in Chicago in about a year or so. And the graduate students are also working toward a national conference on race and capitalism. But we were asked by leading academic research group, did we want to change scholarly debate or influence public, uh, uh, public discourse on race and capitalism? Because it was very clear that we couldn't do both. And we look at our blank faced, I remember, quite clearly, <laughs> and said both. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so, in addition to reading each other's work, having scholarly beat across boundaries that are mostly artificial, so we have, you know, you know quantity of social scientists talking to political philosophers, talking to demographers, talking to ethnographers, etc. We also have partnerships with uh, various community groups and other organizers, and in addition to producing scholarly materials, are talking and working in partnership to try to produce materials for a much wider audience that would be useful for people trying to fight for social justice, racial justice, economic justice, gender equality, and the like. Uh, so, part of our vision is that, unlike a lot of these groups, our, our definitive end goal is not, and I repeat, is not an edited volume. We do hope to proud in partnership, a number of volumes, um, some scholarly, some not scholarly. Hopefully do some animations. We're doing podcasts, obviously. We do short items on on, on some blogs for groups like the Social Science Research Council. So we want to produce a process that will be self-sustaining so that we do reshape how the academic community thinks about the intersection of race and other systems of domination on one hand, and try to make this part more of the public discourse around politics and equality within the united states and through or, or over the, across the borders of the united states my own small part in this is that i started thinking more like a political theorist briefly and started thinking about the intersections and what type of models the theoretical and philosophical models make sense to sure. thinking about the origins of the Intersections of Race and Capitalism was responding to a very important article by political theorist Nancy Fraser, who tried to think through very successfully, I thought, how to think about within a capitalist social order, gender, politics, and the environment. And I then tried to extend that to thinking through race at the same time. And my work is continuing on that. And one of the things I've done, partly through the SSRC project, but in an article I'm working on now, is going back to think about work of uh, Chicano political theorist and social scientist, um, political scientist, Barbara, and intel- uh, black movement intellectual James Boggs from the work several decades ago to think, rethink intersection of capitalism both the Southwest and throughout the United States from the standpoint of does it make sense to think about internal colonization at the same time that we think globally about the process of colonialism being central to the development of racial capitalism, the intersection of racial capitalism internationally.
1: Great. Thank you. So I don't think all of our listeners know this, but you are the inaugural recipient of the Haynes Walton Jr. Award, meant to recognize a political scientist whose lifetime of distinguished scholarship has made a significant contribution to our understanding of racial and ethnic politics and illuminates the conditions under which diversity and intergroup tolerance thrive in democratic societies. A huge congratulations. This has been, I, I'm very excited about this. If you could say a bit, I, I think one of the things that obviously comes up um, in this award and many people in the race and ethnicity Politics subgroup kind of the announcement of the award has made many of us think back upon Who influenced us and also whose shoulders do we stand on? and I was wondering if you could say a bit about whose shoulders do you stand on and Also about who are pioneering black social scientists that have influenced your own scholarship.
0: Well My first mentor was Sinclair Drake, one of the co-author of uh-huh. Black Metropolis. He was brought to Stanford to help put down the Black Student Rebellion. Instead, he, ta- he told us <laughs> about how his experience as a black student organizer way back in the day and provided a black studies department that I still consider at the time to be, well, the program, not a department, that was a model in terms of very rigorous pedagogy and scholarship on one hand, but also a big tent in terms of encouraging diverse political ideologies and ideals to be de- debated within the context of that institution. And of course, he, his own life and scholarship reflects that in terms of how he was himself was an organizer throughout his own, the great majority of his life, particularly when he was younger, but, uh, both in the United States, leading student strikes at Hampton, a historically black college and university on one hand, organizing during World War II, and at the same time working with some of the the early leaders of African independence, like Kwame Nkrumah, the first president of Ghana. So he was a massive role model. I think I annoyed him a little bit when I was a student. Uh, one of my friends told me, he said, Dawson has to make up his mind whether to be an activist or a student. And I think he was really annoyed because <laughs> it's pretty clear I became an activist and not a student <laughs> at the time. Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, for better or for worse, I eventually became a scholar. At least that's what the paycheck says. <laughs> and the other really significant mentor I had was Haynes Walton, who's in, who the award is named oh, after. Wow. And he had been navigating this discipline, as you know as well as I do, is very hostile to the type of questions we want to ask, the type of methods we want to use, and the approaches and life experience that we bring to our research. He was really extraordinarily helpful to me in a number of, you know, of political scientists across generations to both both show how one could get one's work done and make it important and influential and at the same time give back to younger scholars. Intellectually, you know, there's a wide range of influences. I I think I've always gravitated toward the stories of intellectual activists, I.D.B. Wells or Du Bois or... Even someone like like Malcolm X, who could all take the ideals of the black community, translate them into action, and also into a clearer, more coherent way of thinking about um, the black black status in the U. S. and what to do about it politically, and all the time upholding principles of self-determination, equality, and uh, this, not just a desire for, it, but an action toward a more just and democratic society because the United States has not been just or democratic for people of color. And I think we can say that it's far
1: from reach that, as as we well know. Great. And were you at, again, when Haynes Walton was there?
0: I was one of the people. I think we overlapped for maybe a year. Um, Okay. But one of the things he did was he came... To Ann Arbor, almost several summers. So we, so, so there were times that we spent, you know, those of us at Michigan at the time spent with Haynes during the summers as well. When he was there for like the ICPSR summer programs and, and methods. Uh,
1: okay. Fascinating. All right. Um, in terms of a, of of a perhaps last question here, I'm wondering if you can. This this is maybe perhaps a selfish question, but I'm wondering if you might provide or at least from your perspective what are possible research directions uh, for younger scholars whether that is in the social sciences and political science and race and politics i i know you kind of touched on this a little bit in in your response to my first question but i think that oftentimes graduate students come in and they're like i have no idea what to do everything all the big important questions have already been addressed and answered and i always tell right students that that's not true um and i often I, it often comes from a place of what books and or articles I would like to read. <laughs> 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 and, 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 and so I'm curious from you about perhaps future directions or areas, of scholarship that you would like to read.
0: So I had a physics background and was wanting to be a physicist for most of my young life. I worked in a physics lab for several years and still try to keep up with as a very, very lay person with what's going on in the physics community. One of the things about physics and science in general that I find really fascinating, the more you ask questions, the the more you realize you don't know. Uh (laughs) So so if you have a great discovery or a great revelation, that just means you realize the depth of your ignorance even more. And I think that applies to the world we study as well and the way we approach it. So what I would like to see is, one, there's the question of Alfredo Gonzalez, who's, who is the producer for the podcast on his work, uh, your work. We have a changing racial environment just within the United States um, mm-hmm. uh, has been accelerating in, in its changes. What are the ideologies? What are the patterns of influence? What, how does new media... And communication technologies shape patterns of, what's, it, for example, what are the differences between how communities of color during the Chicano movement, during the ancient American movement, during the Black Power movement in the 70s, for example, how do those patterns differ today than they did then? What are, What's responsible for those changes? What are the institutional and media changes that have led to those to differences today. Where do we see patterns of cooperation? Where do we see patterns of conflict? There are still some old questions we don't have answers to that I think the 2016 election makes very, very evident. It is a f- way forward to a more just society, one that is less based on authoritarian nationalism, trying to you know, put political resources into trying to convince white workers to ally with people in similar economic stat- uh, status as them. Uh Or is it more to try to understand the disaffection among African Americans, the low participation rates among some Latino groups, trying to understand how to mediate conflicts over affirmative action between some, not all, but some groups of Asians and some some groups of blacks, for example. These These are questions that have deep intellectual roots in terms of how we think about conflict and cooperation, ideology, the roles of social movements and political institutions, the role of political parties, that are shaping not just the future of the United States, but I think we can say, given the recent turn in political events, the future of the globe. How One of the questions I think we find in some of the work of people working the recent capitalism project, how do questions of inequality as affect uh, humans affect, be, be related to questions about how to save the the environment. Right. Uh, so I was asked a question about a year ago from some environmental activists of color saying that they advocated a no growth economy. What, and what did people, What would people of color say about that? And I said, I don't speak for people of color. But I would guess there, as a public opinion researcher that if there wasn't a massive redistribution of existing wealth to address existing inequality that a no-growth economy would not be a solution that would be embraced by many communities of color who are already very much been bearing the cost of environmental degradation, um, changes in the economy, et cetera. But so those are the type of questions I think need to be addressed. And I certainly would read articles in books who people <laughs> don't write them. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Excellent. I, I So would I. That all sounds fascinating. And also in the direction of what you and I separately and together are focusing some of our research on moving forward. So with that, I think we'll end. I think that's a good stopping point. Michael, thank you so much uh, you, for your willingness and your generosity to answer these questions of mine.